You're listening to TIP. Hey, so how's everyone doing out there? On today's show, we're going to be talking about the famous Chinese billionaire Jack Ma. In the past, we read a book about Jack Ma and reported back on everything we learned about his biography and his rise to e-commerce dominance inside of China. But today we're going to be highlighting a few of the more interesting comments that we've recently found with interviews that Jack has conducted. Jack's personal net worth is around $42 billion. He's the founder and executive chairman of Alibaba Group. And in 2017, he was ranked second for the world's greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. So without further delay, here are some of the more interesting comments from the Q&As with billionaire Jack Ma. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. So uh, welcome to the show. Like we said in the introduction, we're going to be covering Jack Ma, who's the famous billionaire out of China. And to kick this off, we'll just play our first question and Jack's response to the first question. And this question was, can you give us two or three things that would help people understand more about Alibaba and what it is? And this is what he said. We are a, well, very complicated. We start from Alibaba B2B, helping small business do import-export. And then we do the B2C, Taobao and Tmall. And then we build up the Alipay, the payment system. And we have the channel, the logistics system. Our mission is helping doing business easier. So we are not e-commerce company. We help others to do e-commerce. If you want to have the payment, we solve the payment solution. If you want to find customers, Alibaba, Taobao, Tmall helping you find the customers. If you want to have the logistics, we help you to solve the logistic problems. So we are the e-commerce enabler. And uh, we do not buy and sell like Amazon because we think we should help small business to buy and sell easy and effectively. We do not own the uh, logistic services, but there are about 2 million delivery guys helping us to serve. Today, our last year, our sales is 390 billion US dollars. We call ourselves, we are of the small business, by the small business, and for the small business. It's this $390 billion. 95% of them are sold by the 10 million small business. They are all small business. And our sales this year is going to be over, I think December, if we're lucky enough, will be bigger than Walmart globally. And uh, which in five years, I want to say here, make a bet, small business always make a bet. <laughs> in five years, we will be bigger. We will go across one trillion US dollar sales. <clears throat> and that is going to be down, not by Alibaba, down by small business. How we can empower them, supporting them, the small business to sell more. And we only have 34,000 people. From 18 people in my apartment to today, we have 34,000 people. And we are going to reach, go across 1 trillion US dollars by less than 50,000 people. Because we know the fewer people we have, the more innovative we will create our technology and products to empower the others to hire more people. 
because the more people we have, will be very bureaucratic. So some very impressive numbers, obviously, that he's talking about. But the thing that I think really delineates Jack Ma and Alibaba from Amazon is really this small business piece. And I thought that I heard him say in there that they don't have any distribution centers like Amazon, which is quite interesting. I I wonder how much, and I've never used Alibaba. I'm curious, have you ever used Alibaba at all? No, but after listening to this interview, I mean, I need to, right? I'm really impressed. Like, because he was standing this up with about 34,000 people, I think you said, but then he had 2 million people delivering the goods. I mean, it really makes you think of Uber or something. Yeah. And I guess when I hear that, I'm kind of curious whether the service would be better than Amazon. Because I know with Amazon, I mean, it's just, it is so consistent and reliable when you buy something on Amazon that you're getting it. You know, I have Amazon Prime. I get it very quickly. It comes in a standardized box with the packaging and everything. I'm kind of curious if you kind of have the same experience with Alibaba and it's coming at the same speed and maybe the same quality of logistics because he's decentralized all of that. But quite fascinating. And I, I also think it's just crazy to think that he's going to be over a trillion in sales within five years. That's just, that's astronomical. Yeah. You know, I, honestly, it really made me think of Google whenever I was listening to this interview because he was saying that they're not an e-commerce company. They're an e-commerce enabler. And he said, if you want customers to pay for your goods, they handle the payments. It's the Alipay. If you want more customers, then they help you find the customers. And I was thinking about, you know, AdWords. And I was thinking about AdSense in the sense that they're facilitating, right? So you will have all these creators of content out there, regardless of the industry. And they will write something or create a video about whatever it is. And then here with AdSense, you have this amazing sharing tool where Google makes money and you make money as the creator from the ads. And I kind of like that approach. I really like Alibaba's way of saying this. They can really steer the ship in, in any direction because they are enabling other people to do what they're good at. And of course, they make sure to, to take a cut out of that. So I, it was something that really impressed me. And you know, I, I kind of like the idea of they are the platform it makes me think again of Google is really, for me, is really top of the class. And they are enabling artificial intelligence to happen. Like you can use their code, their open source code to create your own products that I would assume then would be completely feasible with the Google products and whatnot. But anyway, they're creating the standards, free or paid for others to thrive. And then they will ensure that they gain pay in the end. And it kind of seems like that's what, what they're doing in China too. And though I've been visiting China, I, I have no clue how Alibaba works. I'm just very impressed by them kind of like being the gold standard, it sounds like, uh, the way he describes it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. It does kind of seem like they're taking a Google approach to the way that they're outsourcing everything and trying to push it down to the lowest level and let you know give other people the opportunity to perform. And they're still benefiting tremendously from that by being basically the broker between all these B2B or B2C uh, models. You know, I really like the way he runs through the numbers. You know, he's talking about them being bigger than Walmart. Walmart has 2.3 million people. And I know this is a different structure, but if you compare that to Alibaba, they have 34,000 employees. I mean, to me, that's crazy. I mean, that, that is a different world. Yeah, no, you're right. It is huge. 
All right, let's go ahead and uh, play the next one here. This is what Jack was asking. What do you think are the types of failures young people make that they should learn the most from? And this was his response. Let me tell you that one day I was uh, reading a biography of General after Second World War. And I feel impressed not is how much victories, successful battlefield that he achieved. I think, well, you know, if I was a young man at that time, I could do better. But I was impressed by how many suffers, the terrible experience that he survived. That surprised me. The grand-grandfather always tell us, you know, Jack, I've been doing that much. I made a lot of mistakes. I'm still surviving. I said, wow. But if he say, you know, I've been achieved that much, I say, hey, you know, if I were your age, if that were that time, I could do better. So people will feel proud when the day when you tell your grandson about how much tough days you have gone through. I think one day I share with my kids, my grandchildren, how much Alibaba have gone through the tough days, the mistakes, doing business. It's just like uh, go to the battlefield. The survivor wins. No matter how brief you are, you're dead. People forget you within three days. But if you survive, you always have chance. And go to battlefield is that an experience the soldier know that how to hit himself and then fight. Young soldiers just to go out to fight. There are various reasons for one person to be successful, but there are almost the same reasons for people who fail. Greedy, wrong team, wrong too fast, with too much money. By the way, you will never make big mistakes where you don't have money. <laughs> right? But people say, if I have money, I'm going to do a big business. No, no, no. <laughs> Remember that all the mistakes the other people made, you will make it. If you want to be successful, learn from the mistake the other people made. Not because you will avoid these mistakes, because you know how to face these mistakes and troubles when these things come. Right? When you suffer a lot of mistakes, we say, wow, this guy's coming, uh, these mistakes come. How the Jack Ma did it, how Bill Gates did it, how Obama did it, you know, when the tough day comes. It's, it's not because you can avoid it, because when the, the problem comes, how you face it with great attitude, then you succeed. All right. So uh, this response kind of reminds me of the Damon John book, especially his comment there about not having any money to make a big mistake. I, I really like that. <laughs> I think that gets at what Damon was hitting wet with his book. You know, so many people say they've got to have $100,000 to do whatever marketing campaign. And, you know, based on Jack's response, it kind of seems like he would disagree with that opinion. He thinks that you need to go out there and make as many mistakes as and learn from as many mistakes as you can whenever you're poor. And then when you start making money, you've really got to be ahead of this and study and learn from other people that are smart and kind of capture what they did to navigate those rough seas. And it's just kind of a, a neat response. Stig, did you have anything else you wanted to add on this one? Yeah, you know, I, I really loved how he was talking about how there are many reasons why people succeed, but it seems like there, it's always the same reasons why people fail. And he mentions three different things, greed, the wrong team, and too much money that you also mentioned, Preston. And about the greed, I really, oh my God, I really, really love this. You know, 
it seems like whenever you're in business, you're often faced with options. Well, it kind of seems like there only you only have one option, right? You need to get more, and then the other party will gain less. That's kind of like how it looks like, really, from the outside. But I think this is really what Jack is getting at. Do not be greedy. Be generous here. Spend some time considering how you can grow the pie, because really, what happens then? Well, I mean, you're getting more, and your partner is getting more, and hopefully, you will open up to more wealth and the long-term prosperity for the both of you. It just seems like if you focus on getting more now and really not working to find alternative solutions, there's risk, a high risk of you losing your reputation, which is really the most valuable asset you have whenever you start. Entering the business world, and it really reminds me of these stories you hear about. You know, the good, strict, and tough CEO. Like he's he would be this tough negotiator, and he does not budge at any point in time. And honestly, I think what Jack is really getting at here is this is a wrong strategy. I mean, the story should go something like the CEO was fantastic. He found a way of how both parties could uh, prosper more. I might be putting too much into his his thesis about greed, but that was definitely、uh, what I was、uh, reading into it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting, from finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S. They know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa dot com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data, and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously. And the best part is that it's a hundred percent free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, "What is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts?" Check it out today for free at Meka dot com. That's M E Y K A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. 
Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. All right, so uh, we're going to move on to the next question. And this one is for entrepreneurs. Let's say you're working on something and it's kind of a crazy dream or you're trying to build this business and you're not having a lot of success and you're taking criticism. How do you keep driving on without giving up? And this was Jack's response. If you have a crazy dream, very important is that you have to find the people around you. When we invest a company, I want not only looking at the founder, I want to see the people who work with the founder, whether they do believe him. If he is the only person that believes in the dream, that's very dangerous. He's not a crazy dream, he's a crazy person. <laughs> but you have to find a group of people who are all believe they're all crazy. Something interesting there. Right, because it's easy to make one person crazy, but if you make the whole team crazy, something interesting. This is what I did early days of Alibaba. I, I made a speech in America, talk about the value mission and management way of running an internet company. That was very early, two thousand one two. There is a guy, an American guy, sitting there. Say, hey, this is a crazy guy. Internet have to survive first to make profit, revenue, forget about kind of value, mission, and team working. You know, this is all, this is all lies. He said, you're crazy. I say, sir, welcome to Alibaba someday. So he came to Alibaba, spent a few days. The day when he left, he said, Jack, I thought you are crazy. Now I found 100 crazy guys in your company. Because <laughs> we believe what we are doing. It's easy to make you believe. But if you can make a group of team believe and continue to do it, that's it. So I think if it's crazy or not, the only testing is the idea if you want to make a company, it sounds crazy, your customer love it. If the customer like it, your team like it, you know it's not crazy. If the customer does not like it, your team don't like it, forget about it. You have to change yourself. Even if you have a crazy ideas, don't believe you are always right. You have to learn. Alibaba in the past 18 years, we have changed at least 18 big major changes. We are not the Alibaba last year. Every year we are different company. Right? So this is, you have to change all the time to be sure that we don't care about it. the other people say you are crazy. We care about is this something really different, really make the difference. That's what we care about. All right. So uh, pretty awesome response here. I really liked how he started this out with saying, you know, if you're the only person in the company that believes in it, then you're the you're the crazy person. <laughs> I mean, he hit it nail on the head. I don't really have anything else to add. I just really kind of like this exchange. And I like the way that he answered this because that's not really how I was expecting him to answer it. So Stig, I'm curious what you think. Whenever I heard this story, it really made me think of Jack Ma himself whenever he was starting out, you know, before he became this billionaire, this big shot, right? And Preston, I read this book uh, about Jack Ma. We're going to link to this in the show note, but I want to say it was just before episode 100, probably 99 or something. And he talks about how he 
kept on applying for jobs in his home city, which was just Presta already knows where I'm going with this. But there's this <laughs> iconic story of KFC coming to town, and they were like really just hiring, right? And they had 24 people applying for the job. And yes, 23 people were hired. Jack Ma was the only one who was left out. Oh my God, what kind of that must be so hard, like being being Jack Ma. And and there was even this horror story where he talks about him and his cousin going out to this job interview at the local hotel. It was like a four-star hotel. And he was so happy because his cousin actually got a lower score than him. That was not why he was happy, but he was happy because he got a lower score than him and he got the job. But even though his cousin got a lower score than him, they still rejected him because they didn't like him. And I mean, he, it's so true. Like whenever he talks about, you have to get used to failure. You know, it's, it's like being a boxer. You need to be able to roll the punches because if you are in the business world, you will just be, you'll just be uh, punching back one way or the other. I think he had an important point there at the end, though, Stig, with you know, basically saying you, you have to be resilient, and but you have to listen to other people. You just can't have this crazy idea or this crazy dream and just move out because you have three people around you that are boosting you up and telling you that it's going to work. You need to listen to what people are saying. And at the end of the day, if it's adding value to the customer, then you're probably making the right decision. All right. So the uh, next question we're going to play is a question that Jack was asked about his opinion on globalization. So this is what he had to say. I think globalization cannot be stopped. Nobody can stop globalization. Nobody can stop trade. And I believe if trade stops, war starts. Trade is the way to dissolve the war, not to cause the wars. I think globalization did a fantastic job in the past 30 years. Enriched a lot of countries, but of course, caused a lot of problems. Young people do not have opportunities. Small business have not opportunities. Developing countries were neglected, but it's only 30 years. It's a baby. It's a growth. You have to improve it. If you do not improve it, then you kill it. It's easy. Most of the time, to kill something is much easy. Now, artificial intelligence come. Robots come. My grandfather worked 16 hours a day, and he said he was very busy. We work eight hours a day. We said we are very busy. Our children may only work three hours or four hours a day for three days a week. I bet they will say, oh, we're very busy. (laughs) Then when you work only three hours a day and four days a week, what are you going to do? You're going to travel around. Right? You cannot stay in the home for a week. You will travel. 30 years ago, normal life, you visit 20 to 30 cities whole your life. 30 years later, in your life, you will visit 300 cities in your life. Because of mobile. How can you stop it? It's impossible. So thinking about that, the only thing is to improve it, to make it simple. Global trade should be simple, should be modernized. Should have given inclusive. Everybody have the opportunity. Well, I feel sorry for WTO. They did a great job. But uh, in the past 20 years, when you put the 200 government ministers in a one room, how can they agree on something? <laughs> right? Because I don't like a country. No matter how good suggestion you have, I say no. <laughs> but business people, even if we put 200 business people in a one room, 
we will surely agree on something. And this is what I believe. The next generation of globalization should be inclusive, should create opportunities for young people to get involved. The first globalization in human history was controlled by few kings and emperors. Last 30 years, globalization was controlled by 60,000 big companies. If you're not among the big companies, if you're not in the big powerful countries, you don't have a chance. The next 30 years, I bet we will have 6 million or 16 million or 60 million companies get involved in the globalization. And I'm sure we will make it happen together with a lot of people, maybe with you. With a mobile phone, if people still using mobile phone 30 years later, with a mobile phone, you can global buy. You want to buy something from Kenya? You just click. You want to buy something from Norway? You click global buy, global sell. If you're a small thing, without internet, you can only sell in your village or small town. Today, you can sell across the world. And global pay, global delivery, and global travel, the only thing you have to bring is a mobile phone, not even a passport. This is going to happen in 10 years. And this is the message. Let's catch this opportunity. If you complain, the other people catch it. If you catch the opportunity, embrace it now, you will be the next Alibaba. I was born in a very poor family. I never got a great education. I failed all the examinations. For what reason? I don't know. But later, I realized I don't have money. I don't have technology. I don't have a lot of good backgrounds. We have a rich uncle or something. No. <laughs> the only thing I competed with my people, the young people, is let's compete for 10 years later. This is what I believe 10 years later will be happening. So everything I do for that goal, I know 10 years later, this thing is going to happen. So prepare for that. Because I know if I compete with him for next month, no chance. So this is how my message, it's a challenge, but it's an opportunity. All right. So some really interesting comments there about globalization. And what's, I think, so fascinating about his response is it's totally opposite of what we're seeing in the last few months with the way things politically have been happening around the world with you know tariffs and kind of this trade war that we're seeing erupt here in the summer of 2018. But you know, as we think through, like Jack was saying, in 10 years from now, do we still see the trade war and all these tariffs, these enormous tariffs that are being waged around the world continuing to exist or getting worse? I don't necessarily know that I would see that getting worse in a 10-year time frame. I think that it's going to probably get worse through 2018 into 2019, but I think that you're going to see a reprieve from that. And there's going to be something type of agreement that comes out of this, and then maybe it even gets better from there. So Stig, I'm kind of curious how you're hearing his comments and then also looking at things in the modern context of what's actually happening. Yeah. So uh, Preston, I'm really happy you said modern context because I would like to talk about 1951. <laughs> so I'm going to answer this in, in a very different way, but then I will hope I can go back to the present. You know, Back in 1951, the Coal and Steel Union was founded, and it, today it's known as the European Union. It was founded by Belgium, France, West Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. And it was so important in Europe that you have the Coal and Steel Union, because if you cooperate 
about coal and steel, it was really, really difficult to go to war with each other. As prosperous as Europe has historically been, Europeans tend to go to war with each other like all the time. And I know that since 1951 is only a very brief period of time, but you haven't seen any traditional war in Europe since, in Western Europe, if I might add. I think that was also what he was getting at when he talked about you cannot stop globalization. Uh, trade is the way to achieve peace. You know, whenever goods are traveling across borders, it's really hard to send soldiers also. I think it's interesting to hear his thoughts about simplified global trade. Following World War II, you had all these different organizations, GATT probably being the most successful, then transitioned into the World Trade Organization. And really the plan was not to have tariffs and quotas. And even back then, they kind of knew that it wouldn't be possible, but the fewer tariffs and quotas you would have, the better it would be for the economy, which in itself is a very difficult statement to present really to the public because the political system does not work like that. Typically, when you ask and you talk about quota and you talk about tariffs, the rhetoric is more about protecting domestic labor. And there's definitely some truth to that. And it's very, very difficult to do it any other way. But if you look at it in aggregate, more tariffs and more quotas would be bad for the overall employment. And it would be bad for prices. Really, if we would like to have like low prices as consumers, we should welcome trade as much as possible. So if we talk about more present issues, I mean, it is very, very difficult to reach this agreements and you have 200 government officials together, you know, it's close to being impossible. And we see that over and over again. And Jack Ma brings up this example of why do we not let business people speak to each other? Because it's easier for them to agree on something. I would agree with him. And this is a very political loaded question. So it really depends on which side you're on. Because if you put together 200 business people, what will they agree on? Well, they'll probably agree on free trade, more or less. Like, in general, for most business people, they like free trade, they like no tariffs, no quotas. But we also know that free trade is something that can create more social tensions. We also see that it can create high inequality. And a lot of these people who might agree on this might not be averse to high inequality if that is where they're getting at. So I'm really trying to, before throwing over to Preston here, I'm really trying to see it from both angles, like from a financial or economic perspective, no Free trade is 99.999% good, but it might not be good in a political sense in terms of employment in the short term for some countries. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping. And say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative and keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So I, I, the first thing that I would say to him is, well, the decision makers aren't all business people in the room, and I don't see that happening in the next 10 or 20 years either. I'm more of like, how are things actually going to happen? And whenever I think about that, yeah, free trade is, is a great thing from a global and macro perspective of everybody involved. But if you're the country that has an enormous trade deficit, it's not. And that's very bad for a country that has an enormous trade deficit. And so I, I don't know that I see it as cookie cutter as he's making it. I think that I agree with him on the front that technology is going to maybe have the impact here and where I think that that might end up being. He said in his comment, global money. He said things are going to have global money. If there is truly global money, that is a fixed monetary baseline that can't be manipulated. You're going to see things have to mature and have to evolve to what he's describing. But if that doesn't happen and you continue to have fiat-based currencies that are completely centralized around the world, I think you're going to continue to see the same dynamic we're seeing today play out. And it's just going to be who's fighting for more tariffs and who's not. For me, that's the big discriminator between the world that Jack Ma just described and whether we continue down the status quo of what we've seen in the past. Yeah, in short, like we also have to think about where the message is coming from. I mean, if you are the CEO and founder of Alibaba and you would like to, you know, sell your goods in all countries around the globe, would you like tariffs? Would you like quotas? 
Probably mm. not. If you're a congressman from Nebraska and you know that your voters would like, you know, terrors of whatever kind of crop that they're growing, you know, it's different. And that's also for good reason why it's not easy. You know, you, you see this new agreement between the European Union and Japan, like this huge, huge deal. And they would like to remove tariffs or lower tariffs and quotas of as many as 99% of the goods. But then there's one Japanese good that is always protected, and that's rice. And think about this Japanese government who would say, well, sure, we've just liberalized everything. No, that would never happen because they have strong historical reasons and there's a lot of lobbyism in terms of having your own rice production. It's just as simple as that. And you see that all over the world. So I like your point, Preston, about this hypothetically would be the best thing, but that's not how, how the world is. Like saying that a world without politicians is in one shape or form, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I don't know, I have a real hard time seeing that too. <laughs> I'll grant you that. Yeah. Now, I, I think that he has some interesting points there, but there's some things that I think have to happen in order for that vision that he's, that he's talking about to actually mature and, and happen. And I think that this uh, thing with the currency stuff is is interesting. And I think that, you know, you got a lot of people talking Bitcoin, talking cryptocurrencies and how they could become global money. And, you know, then you get into the energy discussion with some people. And, you know, there, there's a lot of people arguing why they don't think that something like that can happen. I don't necessarily know. I kind of think that something like that is going to happen. But who knows? I mean, there's just no way of knowing that. But I think that that's going to be a really critical point to all of this is whether you get people that are not manipulating currency in what's happening. Because uh, let's let's talk about what's happening right now. This is a perfect example. So in the US, they're exercising enormous tariffs on China. And so what did we see? How did China react to that? Well, their currency is devaluing at the fastest rate that we've seen, you know, in since we can remember. And it doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. So the yuan's devaluing at, at a rapid pace, which is completely offsetting the tariffs that are being in place. I don't know that it's a one for one, but it's definitely a fighting strategy to offset what's being done. So without any type of control over how fiat is managed in the monetary baseline of fiat, you're going to continue to have this back and forth and this wrestling of what's fair, what's not fair. Because at the end of the day, this is a big power struggle of who's controlling what. And the dollars talk and the currency talks, and we're seeing it play out firsthand. It's quite fascinating. We had a guest on the show, Richard Duncan, and he did a fabulous job laying out how the dollar has evolved over the last, you know, basically the last century, and how whenever the dollar became depegged, you had other countries around the world print a bunch of fiat, which then caused the U.S. to basically flood the world with dollars. And it's just a quite fascinating discussion. We'll have a link to that discussion in the show notes if you want to really dive into some of the stuff at a lot deeper level. He gives an unbelievable description on how all this has played out and kind of led to what we're seeing today with some of this stuff. All right, guys. So this ends our discussion about Jack Ma. And at this point in time in the show, we would like to play a question from the audience. And this question comes from Madison. Hey, Preston Stig. This is Madison. First and foremost, just want to thank you for all the time and effort that goes into your show. I know not only for myself, but on behalf of all listeners, it really does bring a lot of value in the education. It's priceless. So 
been listening to about a year and a half now and really just want to thank you for all your hard work. My question today is regarding an area that Buffett and Munger put a lot of emphasis towards and have also added that it's on their investment checklist. And that's management who operates by honest integrity and are competent. So I was wondering if there's some financial metrics, whether you look at or you would suggest us as listeners look at for us to gauge whether you know management is operating under integrity and honesty and are really competent. Thank you. I really like this question. And it's definitely a question that I thought a lot about. I'm doing that today, but I also really did that whenever I was starting out with stock investing because you hear so many smart people, including Buffett and Munger, and they talk about you should only invest in companies that has really good management, that have high integrity, they're honest people. But where's the integrity number in the financial statements? I guess that is what you're getting at here. And of course, it's hard. Like You almost need to derive those numbers. So really, to me, I guess the key metric to use would really be the track record. Now, I, I can be a bit more specific here, but I think the track record, at least as long as the same management, I think that would be a really good indicator. Talk is cheap. And if you jump on these earnings call, you know, you hear these managements who are just like, they know everything, right? They say all the right things. And every time they get a question, they have just the right answer and they have no shred of doubt that they're correct. And then you look back at the track record and, you know, they haven't made a dime over the past 10 years. And you're like, no, I, I, don't, I don't trust that person. So it is, of course, difficult just like listening to what they say. So that's why I placed so much emphasis on the track record. I look at debt. I think that's an important factor. I think it's very tempting to a lot of management to use that as a shortcut because whenever you're using debt, especially since it's limited liabilities, even though that you are the CEO and you have a resume to think of, there is a lot of downside risk that is not really... It might be your responsibility, but that's not how you might act because you get so much of the upside if that debt is really put to use in a good way. So I would definitely say I would look into two months debt. I don't like a too high debt to equity ratio. I also use the coverage ratio, prefer if it's above five or 10. And then in general, whenever I am listening to the managers or the CEO talk, like, you know, who takes the credit for when and who's blamed if something goes wrong. And the thing you can read a lot into that, especially like looking into all companies here over the past few years and whenever you saw the price uh, plummet, you know, there seemed to be some CEOs and they're talking about their own failures. And then you had other CEOs, they only talked about, oh, they were just so unlucky that the oil price slept, right? And you're like, you CEO of an oil company, you had no clue that the price of oil could go down. It's like just the way that they talk about it. I think that's a huge red flag. And just one more metric that I really find interesting and really look looking at how it's composed. It's something like the turnover rate. So the turnover rate of your employees. And when I was thinking about this, I would say, well, if it's a bad company, then the turnover rate would be high. Or if it's a good company, it's the other way around. So apparently a lot of studies have been done on this. And really what you come up with is that comparable companies, they're more or less the same as the best companies that you can find out there. But great companies, they do something different. Again, so the average is the same, but they do something different. So either whenever they bring people into the management, they are there for a very, very long time 
and it's really good with the consistency, or they realize that they're not a good fit, they're not top performers, and they just fire them just right away because then there's no reason why they should dilute the quality of the management in the company. So I know that this was a lot of talk. <laughs> I guess I didn't give you that key metric, that metric that's called the integrity metric or good management metric in the financial statements. But it is, I guess at least to me, it's hard to come up with just one key metric to look at. So Madison, your question is not an easy one to answer. And I think anyone that you talk to is going to tell you that this is very difficult to be able to assess. So I think that's the starting point is that I don't think that there is a right answer here. If I was going to tell you how I personally do it, I think the conference calls, you learn a lot. And I think you learn a lot about the people that are leading the company. And you know, Stig was talking about humility. I completely agree with him. You're looking for somebody who has a lot of humility, that's calm, that's balanced, that talks about the pros and the cons in an equal way whenever they're discussing their company. I think that's really, really important. You're obviously looking for somebody that has a track record that's been there for a while. Let me give you an example of what I think is a bad example of ethical behavior. And I'm going to get a lot of flack for saying this, but... For me, I just I see this as a red flag. I'm not saying this person's unethical, but what I am going to tell you is this is a flag for me, and this is not normal behavior, and this is something that I'd be looking out for. And the person is Elon Musk. With his recent conference calls and the way that he's acting and his behavior, it's not normal. It's not balanced. Does that mean that Elon Musk could be doing everything ethical and his company could go on to quadruple in size? Absolutely. But for me personally, you know how many companies I can invest in on the public markets? Thousands upon thousands. There's tons of choices out there. I don't have to own Tesla. I don't have to put myself and expose myself to somebody that I don't think is in a stable position right now. That could be a, a major mistake. But something else that Buffett and, and Munger and this guy say is I'd rather make a mistake of omission opposed to a, a mistake that I clearly could identify as maybe being an issue. And for me, when I look at Tesla, I think that there's concern there. I think that maybe he might not be doing things completely ethical. And so that's, I guess, the, the maybe the best way to describe it is give you an example of an area where I think there is a concern. And that, that for me is a concern. You know, I, I really like that you bring up Elon Musk also because not too long from now, we're actually going to do an episode like this about Elon Musk. We definitely think there is a ton of things we can learn from him. And in our research, we stumbled upon this question when he was asked by a reporter. We're not going to play it, so I'm just going to briefly talk about it here. It talks about how much do you think about headlines whenever you're making a presentation? And he was like, sure, I do that. Yeah, it's very important because you try to convince investors to do this and that. And I was like, can you just imagine, Preston, having Buffett say that? Yeah, I think <laughs> in terms of headlines, I need to convince investors to give me more money because I'm losing I have never made a profit, so I need to convince investors to give me more money and, and the bank to, to give me a loan. Well, I think that their approaches are completely different. So like Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, completely different approaches to building value for society, right? So I think that we've, we've got to first delineate those two and, and say that we're not comparing apples to apples. But at the same time, I think that the propensity for somebody to do something unethical is way higher when you're trying to move really fast and use a lot of leverage. Okay. I, I just think that you're more prone to that because you're 
influenced by continuing what you're trying to do and trying to continue to grow. And, and that opens the door to be doing those types of activities a whole lot more than somebody who has a ton of retained earnings, who has very little debt, that is operating a very consistent business with a competitive moat that is impenetrable. You're in a different situation. You're not reaching for those potential situations where you have to be unethical in order to keep the boat afloat. And so I I don't know. I think that those are those are considerations. Those are things that you have to think through whenever you go out and you buy or you invest in Tesla, that there's that potential that maybe they're cutting corners or whatever. But you know, typically there's a lot of upside on those kind of businesses. So if it continues to grow and mature and everything else, but it's just stuff people have to be thinking about. And it's stuff that you have to be aware of and it's risks that you have to assume as an individual investor. All right, Madison. So uh, fantastic question. This is really, really important stuff that you're asking about. As a result, we're going to give you a free course on our TIP Academy page. It's for our intrinsic value course. This is a paid course, but for asking your question, you're going to get it completely for free. For everyone else, you can check out the course we're giving to Madison for this great question. You can do that at TIPintrinsicValue.com. But uh, guys, that was all I pressed on the hat for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 